Christian Education On today's episode of Urban Puritano, I discuss Christian education through the analytic tool of worldview thinking. Although worldview thinking has fallen on hard times, I still believe worldview thinking is quite amenable to Reformed theology, and vice versa. Is it possible to see Christ in all of education? Stay tuned. All Christians are urban Christians. Whether you live in Graceville, Florida, or Chicago, Illinois, the believer is on a pilgrim's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. As we endeavor to live unto God in this world, our faith looks for the city which is to come, whose architect and builder is the living God. You are not alone on your journey. As you travel the narrow way, know that a great cloud of witnesses went before you. Many travel alongside you, and while the Lord tarries, many will follow the same path after you. But until the heavenly city is brought to us, or we to it, one such pilgrim is your fellow traveler. He is Urban Puritano. The education of children is a serious matter. Christian education, inasmuch as it is a fruit of the church's great salvation, is a vitally serious matter. To all involved, whether students, parents, administrators, teachers, or the surrounding communities schools find themselves in, Christian education, rightly conceived and executed, has a unique stamp pointing to the all-encompassing Lordship of Christ. Does it accomplish this by preaching the gospel of salvation? By promoting missions or evangelizing the lost? Strictly speaking, no. It does this by self-consciously trying to bring to bear the implications of God's whole revelation to the student in all he or she studies. This certainly is not to say we exclude the message of the good news of God's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But it is to say that what the Christian educator is aiming at is glorifying God by educating students as fully as possible in things foundational, practical, factual, ethical, and systematically true so that they may flourish in whatever their God-given callings may be. The Christian educator unabashedly embraces and implements a biblical philosophy of education as foundational to dealing with the student's and his or her areas of study, inside and out. Therein lies one contrast between public education and Christian education from a Reformed or Calvinistic perspective. The means and ends of the respective educational philosophies carried out in public and private Christian schools are strikingly different, and necessarily so, and acutely so for the Calvinist, Calvinists are handicapped by, among other things, the strange visual impairment of recognizing that the truth of the Bible is applicable to every person on this earth, to every subject worthy to be studied, and to every aspect of life. From a Reformed perspective, a fully-orbed Christian philosophy of education makes all the difference in education because it sets forth what must be taught how it must be taught, why it must be taught, what must be learned, 
how it must be learned, why it must be learned, and finally, what must be lived, how it must be lived, and why it must be lived. This all-encompassing Reformed philosophy is derived from the biblical truths and principles that are applicable to adults as much as children. Conversions, decisions of faith, and discipleship may take place. Barriers to such things will be removed as much as possible. Cooperation with the local churches should be viewed as indispensable in this regard. But again, to put it another way, Christian education at its best is designed to be the outworking of a reflective Christian faith to all educational areas for the glory of God and for the good of the student. What then is meant by saying that Christian education offers a unique stamp pointing to the all-encompassing lordship of Christ? What does it mean for a Christian educator to self-consciously bring to bear implications of God's whole revelation in all areas of study. Although God has been marked absent in public education for years, private Christian schools, K-12, through too often carry out a careless and less-than-expectant attendance count for the God they profess to believe in. Is God really in attendance in Christian schools? Does it matter? How could the axiom of Christianity not make all the difference in the world for education? The Bible alone is the word of God. This royal presupposition is our life's blood, our lungs' air, our only sustenance, and our only solid ground. Let me paint a panoramic view of Christian education in answering these and other related questions. The best way that I know how to do this is to paint a reformed portrait of the challenge of Christian education. The broad, flowing strokes of a biblical philosophy of Christian education will be coupled with the glazing parallel strokes of Calvinism. Even if the Christian teacher does not presently share this reformed enthusiasm for and vision of Christian education, I hope their present working knowledge of the contours of a Christian worldview will be enhanced by my efforts. I hope that Christian educators at whatever level they teach or in whatever system they teach in will be encouraged, motivated, inspired, and have their faith strengthened in their own personal reflective process. Christian schools face such a grave responsibility to families, to local churches, to their communities, and to the body of Christ that they should be ever mindful of God's approving or disapproving eye upon the service they render. Does our service reflect this mindfulness? If not, what does that say about us? What does it say about our beliefs? Can Reformed theology contribute anything valuable at all to educational theory and practice? Christian schools, along with public schools, inevitably impact individual lives and the culture at large. Therefore, Christian educators should give serious thought to how they carry out their calling and consider in what ways the fortunes of a Christian worldview can enrich their understanding and appreciation of the teaching profession. As though this self-reflective process in itself weren't challenging enough with all the busyness of our duties in the school year, 
There is another fundamental challenge that touches on everything we do as teachers in Christian schools. It is one that should be resolved, but too often isn't, before the school year starts, and certainly before the teacher steps into the classroom. It is both heavenly and earthly. It is at once existential, epistemological, and everyday. The greatest challenge of Christian education is this, to recognize that there is a unifying principle that not only sustains us through the vicissitudes of our task, but gives rich and lasting meaning in the joys we take part in as well. Reformed theology provides that unifying principle because it invests all of life with a radically scriptural God significance. God undoubtedly looks upon us approvingly when we seek His glory in all the areas of education by recognizing His significance in those areas. It should come as no surprise that God has an opinion on educational matters. In ancient biblical times, education was familial in most cultures. God's people were given the mandate to teach their children His statutes, commandments, and His mighty acts and judgments. They were commanded to fear God and to serve Him in love and gratitude for His mercy and grace upon them. Since God was their Creator, Redeemer, and Deliverer from bondage, the Israelites were expected to wholeheartedly devote themselves to their covenant God. Commitment and allegiance to Him alone were their ultimate responsibility. The Israelites were to shun false gods and to do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. By contrast, the inhabitants of the Promised Land did not serve the true God. Their education, no doubt, prepared their children and youth for a productive, independent adult life in some trade, skill, or profession. However, their whole lives were lived in the context of the great sin of unbelief in the one true God. Their devotion was to falsehood, and their activities, religious or otherwise, were inextricably connected to their ultimate commitment to false gods. It is no wonder God regarded not only their religious practices as sinful, but their mundane activities as such as well. Despite appearances, the crown rights of God reach to everyone and everything. Seen in this light, the Israelites' mission is understandable, to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan, because there could be no integration between a people of truth and a people of falsehood. There could be no neutrality among the two people groups in the issues of life, especially with respect to education, since education is the medium through which truth or error is transmitted on life's issues. We, however, are not in ancient biblical times. Ours is an increasingly crumbling post-Christian relativistic era. Although our mandate is not the conquest of Canaan, are we not called to be a peculiar people unto our covenant God? If we teachers are not mindful of what God approves of or disapproves of in matters pertinent to education, how can the service we render in our Lord's name and under the banner of Christian education be authentic? That would be like an Israelite fashioning an idol and devoting himself to it in thought, word, and deed, 
as a Canaanite might do and considering it no big deal. What then is special about the service we render in the midst of our shattered and decaying culture? Many things make Christian education unique. As Reformed thought sees it, and as my focus will be, the applicability of God's Word to all areas of knowledge is of paramount significance and a singular feature of Christian education. My focus will be just to scratch the surface on the applicability of God's Word to a couple of areas of God's world. Christian schools are not in the business of producing citizens for the benefit of the state. We aren't teaching to prepare students for a career, to ensure a robust national or world economy, or even to promote human rights. The values we hold or desire to pass on to our children are not personal peace and affluence, nor does it involve the ever-changing common good. The purposes for which Christian education exists and the reasons for which we teach in such schools transcend this world, but without ignoring it, of course. Four words sum up the purpose of Christian education and the reason we work as teachers in a Christian school. The glory of God. The glory of God should find full expression in all we believe and specifically in all we teach. This emphasis is all-encompassing, for as Reformed theology maintains, the whole world, things visible and invisible, is the theater of God's glory. With the Bible as our guide and through the discerning theological eyes of faith, we seek to discover how and why God and His Word apply to everything from visible things like the manifold wonders of creation and providence in history to invisible things like the many facets of truth in places we never would have thought to look, such as mathematics. This uniquely Christian emphasis highlights for the student the Christian basis for unity in truth and life. The only question is, will Christians invest the time and expend the effort to discover what is already present within the subjects they teach, namely, a radically scriptural God significance. I think that as an academic community, the Christian school should aspire to echo Abraham Kuyper's thought on the all-encompassing lordship of Jesus Christ. There is not one square inch on the whole plane of human existence over which Christ who is Lord over all, does not proclaim, This is mine. Christian teachers at their best carry out their duties in worshipful awe of God's presence in every realm of knowledge. This is what invests our vocation with meaning. This is what unifies God's truth with our lives. We are co-laborers with Him, standing before students proclaiming, This subject matter is His. Non-Christian thought can't even begin to approximate what we have in God's truth and the foundation it provides for unity with all of life. So, what do we have? A distinctly Christian education doesn't offer, as Reformed philosopher Cornelius Plantinga writes, an education as usual, with Bible classes tacked on, or education as usual with prayers before class. No, a solidly built Christian school 
will rise from its faith in Jesus Christ and then explore the height and depth, the length and breadth of what it means to be built on this faith. For a lifetime of learning and work within the kingdom of God, quoting approvingly from the Puritan founders of Harvard, Plantiga writes, a top-notch Christian education in the 21st century will lay Christ in the bottom. The applicability of the truth of Christ's word must be seen at the core of Christian education and flow throughout everything we teach by lesson and life. A thin veneer of Christianity will not do. A thin veneer of Christianity over education is nothing more than education as usual, with Bible and prayer tacked on. Christian teachers, above all, should not put limits on God by thinking that God only applies to Bible or ethics but not to other subjects. Let the believer who limits God to a select realm of knowledge bear the burden of demonstrating for all, including God, that he is bound to only those territories of truth. This is dishonoring to God, his truth, and his all-encompassing lordship. I'll begin to flesh out how a Christian view of education is distinctive by contrasting it with a non-Christian educator's words on education. Although she is not operating from a Christian faith reference point, I think her words vividly illustrate with great force to Christian educators the contrast that necessarily exists between what passes for professional motivation and nourishment for non-believers and believers. In an article entitled Food for Thought, Kirsten Olson Lanier writes, Good thoughtful work in schools Work that occurs too infrequently helps individuals look at real profound questions of human existence and assumes that children can wrestle with these issues, that their minds will be enlarged and made muscular by such struggles. End of quote. These words are commendable if their meaning were invested with biblically informed assumptions, including a Christian view of creation and human nature created in God's image. As it is, they are not, and the deficiency comes out all the clearer. The one issue that Lanier builds her commentary on good, thoughtful schoolwork around is the complex problem of holding two remarkably contradictory ideas in your mind at once, without resolving the dilemma on either side. This, it would seem, is a virtue to Lanier. She charmingly illustrates the dilemma with an anecdote about having to buy a live mouse to feed it to her son's new pet snake. What an uncomfortable decision. Parents can especially sympathize with her situation. In considering the issue at the pet store with her children, Lanier mused that while it is good and important to care about individual mice, to think that the life of a mouse is important, it was also good for them to purchase a live mouse to use it as food for their snake. Apparently, one good cancelled out the other good. This contradiction was tolerated because of the certain knowledge that things must eat each other in order to live. Little comfort for the mouse. The real issue is not animal survival, but the value she places on holding to contradictions. She calls holding to two mutually exclusive thoughts as, quote, holding on to both the snake and the mouse, unquote. Charming, 
but wrong. Her solution to have children's minds strengthened by profound questions of human existence disappoints. It must because it does not start with God's word. Lanier prescribes that children, and by implication all people, resolve life's profound questions through a process of holding two contradictory ideas at once. Instead of enlarging minds, it impoverishes them and makes education the presentation and propagation of the irrational. But all this is really illustrative of the intellectual struggle, the educational antithesis between Christianity and all non-Christian thought. Anything can constitute a valid perspective if revelation from God is not the foundation of knowledge. Since present non-Christian thought leaves little room for absolute truth, except for the truth that there is no absolute truth, it is perfectly acceptable to hold on to two mutually exclusive positions. One position is as good as the other. From a non-Christian standpoint, anything goes intellectually, and for that matter morally, even contradictions. This is definitely not commendable for Christian educators, but from Lanier's perspective, it is worth lamenting that more schools don't have, quote, sufficient confidence in children that they will ultimately understand and be enriched by such messiness, end of quote. Teachers and children can only be malnourished on such food for thought. At best, from a Christian perspective, her view is naive. It expects rational beings to see the profound issues of life through the lens of the irrational, contradictions, and to live with them. The irony of it all is that what she advocates is already being practiced pervasively and systematically. What she laments as infrequently taking place happens all too often. That's part of our society's problem. Doesn't experience show that children have wrestled with profound questions of human existence and have been guided to embrace the lack of objective unity between what has been inculcated into them from K through 12 and what is expected from them? Doesn't experience show that the best non-Christian instructors can do is offer an education that yields either candy-coated despair on the one hand or candy-coated delusions on the other? I don't mean to suggest that only Christian learners develop academic competencies. That would be ridiculous. What I am suggesting is that only through a Christian worldview can teachers and students make sense of it all. That is, only a distinctly Christian education yields a rational foundation for all truth and its unity with their lives. Briefly consider both science and history, since their content overlaps to some degree. Keep in mind that no matter how much we may wish to avoid it, ethics and morality rears its head in any such discussion. These disciplines ask and attempt to answer the profound questions, what is there and where is it all going, respectively. A child will ask, what is life and where did it come from? The education-as-usual response is that, through incredible naturalistic processes, first the conditions and elements necessary to form a living thing just fortuitously came about. Second, many of those ingredients just got together and blindly synergized in the most hostile of environments. And third, they've been effervescing 
and despite the degenerative effects of unguided random mutations, have just been growing increasingly complex and adaptive ever since. So much so that even our very thoughts are the product of this naturalistic evolutionary process. Our bodies, our minds, and even the deliverances of our minds are geared towards surviving and passing on our genes. Survival takes primacy. Since everything about us is geared towards surviving, from physical traits to our faculties and their deliverances, then truth is not the important issue in any area. This naturalistic view immediately faces a tiny difficulty as a consequence. It cannot be rationally maintained. Latent, if not glaringly present, in this position is the absence of any basis to be rationally confident that the truth of this naturalistic point of view is, well, true. It is positively self-defeating. A proponent of this naturalistic perspective, no less than Charles Darwin himself, had his doubts. He would not be allowed to express them if he were teaching in a public high school today. Nevertheless, this is a fundamental contrast between the education-as-usual answer to biological science and what will be taught to students in Christian school settings. Because of this, then, notice that the non-Christian education is diametrically opposed to Christian education because Christian education's primary concern is for truth in every sphere of knowledge, including science. We seek to equip students with the very tools that bring to bear Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life to all their studies. Education in the truth demands exclusive and all-encompassing allegiance to the only source of truth. This too shows that even as there could be no neutrality in education in ancient biblical times, there cannot be any now. Our educational concern is for the primacy of truth in all areas of knowledge. The dark side of the naturalistic equation is that what ought to be morals, ethics, cannot be objectively derived from what is the observable world. Children who accept what they have soaked in throughout their education may and often do logically conclude with despair and are easily identifiable in schools across the country. They were not given an adequate moral compass to point to things that are good and things that are evil. To borrow imagery from Kirsten Lanier, perhaps the good is the mouse and evil is the snake, or vice versa. Who knows? Who's to say? Without God and his word, we have to hold on to both the snake and the mouse. One is as valid as the other in a naturalistic worldview. When students realize this, they ask themselves, what's the difference? Why does my life matter? Why do my studies matter? Is wrestling with this question even worth it? At least they are honest enough to ask the tough questions, not receiving coherent answers and not knowing what to think of the significance of their lives. They embrace despair. Students soak in such metaphysical naturalism through the years as they are simultaneously guided in their studies of history to conclude that since history has no meaningful beginning, it does not have a meaningful continuation or culmination other than what the individual or political entity constructs for themselves. If we turn to science 
for a knowledge of a cosmic culmination, the ultimate heat destruction of the universe is all that is presently assured for us down the line. Too long ahead for it to matter to us. Naturalistic views of history tell us our world is all there is and no explanation from above is allowed, much less warranted. Yet students are also taught to make evaluations of persons and events. This person is good, in that event evil. Of course, the same person or event may be evaluated by different individuals and different societies quite oppositely. Is a basis other than human convention upon which such evaluations are made taught to students? As the students get older, they reason that even as humans in general have no objective purpose beyond this world, individuals in particular may construct for themselves a reality. This very conclusion is the desired learning outcome in the non-Christian education-as-usual setting. It is very often held up to encourage students to, quote, make the world a better place, end of quote. Many students are convinced that this is the best road to take. Instead of despair, the student is encouraged to make the world a better place and chooses hope for the future. Hope that humanity will work to make the world a better place tomorrow. Are these students equipped to answer the question, who decides what is better? On what basis is one path better than another? The Lord Jesus Christ came proclaiming glad tidings and he was killed for it. To his society, they were obviously not glad tidings, and his proclamation was found worthy of a cruel and profane death. Do votes or numbers determine what is good? Do they determine what is evil, false, or true? Upon what objective basis can the student be justifiably optimistic that his ideals, however they were arrived at, one, should be the ones that others should strive for, and two, will triumph in the future. Even if they do triumph to any degree, how long will they last, and is it worth it? These questions, and the apparently intractable propensity among humans to destroy things and to kill each other, make optimists uncomfortable. At least science relegates our ultimate doom far off into the future. History testifies that as humanity increases in the technical knowledge derived from education as usual, we are that much more destructive of our world and each other. Such teachers and students must ignore the tough questions to retain their optimism and hence the delusion. Praise be to God that we don't have an irrational, fragmented worldview. Glory be to God that of him and through him and to him are all things. Thank God that he has given us his word without which we would be in despair or delusion. The Christian educator rejoices over the fact that as Reformed philosopher Gordon H. Clark stated, quote, Christianity is a comprehensive view of all things. It takes the world, both material and spiritual, to be an ordered system, end of quote. Each part deriving its significance from the whole. Christianity, therefore, encompasses as much as Christ's lordship does. In other words, everything. Everything.
Thank you for joining us at Urban Puritano. We look forward to catching up with you on your next stop along your journey to the city prepared by God for all true believers.